So, hey, everybody, welcome to episode 193 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra, and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down there in San Jose, California, Hello. home of WWDC. All right. Um, so, we have some Ask MTJC. Jaime, have you had a look at these yet? Yes, I have them up right now. All right. Let's see. The first one is from Greg, and, and that is not Greg Heo, which is what I thought at first. Uh, this is at Boy with Axe, who says, uh, you know, first off, great podcast. Love all the tips and picks you always provide. Do you guys? use the new advanced animations with UI kit? And if so, do you have any pointers in general best practices for use? Hmm. I haven't looked at that yet. Well, let's let's first of all convene on what exactly is he talking about? Is it like the uh, property animator stuff for core animation? Or is it something else that it could be that I'm, I'm mistaking it for? I'm guessing he means property animators that came out last year. Was it? Yeah. Because we've had UI dynamics and that kind of stuff for many, many years. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So I'm also a little embarrassed to say that I have not used them yet i haven't really even looked at them yet uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, i guess now it's on my short list of things to do yep <laughs> so for me i was i think i hope i'm not dreaming this but i i was involved in a code review for some code that happened to involve a property animator i think i'm pretty sure it did um so yeah it definitely needs to go on my list of things to to dig out of the, the archive you know watch that session from i think it's last year's wwdc and uh take a look at that but i kind of remember it looking pretty easy like if you if you knew what core animation was doing and you were having trouble stitching these things together i kind of remember it letting you stack them up real nicely i was going to say can you just can you define define or i guess a new way of saying is can you unwrap what the, what uh, that means what property animations means on it? so i think you could do things like you know change the opacity and translate this from one side of the screen to the other and change the the size so i don't know like a a square becomes less opaque you know moves over to the right and then it grows bigger at the same time you know those ones that are sort yeah, of hard to yeah. to animate all together um you could have well, sort of done that before with you know keyframes which can be sort of a mess to deal with or at least i don't know i just never got the keyframes or you could try doing like timings on on like the callbacks stuff does that maybe fall under uh Marin's previous book where he he wrote about um ui animations it was and he presented it two years ago at uh 360i dev do you remember that or is that I didn't. Not, I didn't. That not new enough. Um, if it was two years ago, probably not, because they just came out oh, at, okay. in iOS 10. Oh, I see. Hmm. Yeah, I'd have to look up to see what his was, and I'm trying to remember the age of the um, core animation by tutorials book. But in, in any case, from what I saw here, if, if we're even talking about the same thing, I apologize. Uh, it was kind of nice that you could say, "Hey, here's this animation," almost like setting up like a queue, you know, for like an NS operation queue. Where like, all right, I want to run this animation, but I also want this one you know, simultaneously. And then at the end, I want this final thing to happen. That's mm-hmm. kind of what I remember seeing. And I think it was at work. It might've been some unrelated code for us looking at. So uh, very, very little tangential uh, experience with that, but it, it does. Uh, so thank you, Greg, for bringing that up because it does spur sort of the creative juices and says, Hey, like actually there's some stuff I might want to do in a week or two that would involve something like that. So uh, I'll try researching some of that. So I'm looking at the documentation right now. It's got some interesting stuff. Like you can start, pause, resume and stop animation 
animations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can add animation blocks after the original animation start. You can scrub through a paused animation by modifying the fraction complete property. You can change the animation's direction using the is reverse property, and you can modify the timing and duration of a partially complete animation by pausing and then using a continue animation method. That's pretty cool stuff. So a lot of the a lot of the, the you know old vanilla core animation, you would kind of launch it and then and then you know wait till it finished or or uh, sometimes you could brute force stop it by by just forcing the property. But but it was hard to have precise control over some of those animations. This looks like it's greatly improved, which mm-hmm. is which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that is kind of what I remember seeing in that one one code review. Um, I kind of remember that it was largely a nicer uh, like a nicer way of handling core animation. I, like I don't remember anything in it that you couldn't do with core animation before. It just mm-hmm. would have been really hairy to do, and this makes it yeah. nice yep. and clean. Makes it much. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the same thing that um, I don't know many years ago. What are we talking about? We're talking five, maybe four years ago. Uh, Facebook Pop, if you remember that, was a, a third-party component from Facebook um, as a CocoaPod that would do those sorts of things that you just described. Um, I think they might have used it in the Facebook Paper app, and and if they didn't, uh, they used it in something else like the uh, the animated like button that would push in, spring back out, and then have like you know glitter or something coming out of it. Because I remember using Facebook Pop for for that sort of thing because core animation was difficult to use for very complicated sort of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I suggest, too, that we also look at um, Marin's book called um, iOS Animations by Tutorials. He's, it's been updated for iOS 11 recently. Oh, so um, maybe it is in there. Yeah, because it's got animatable properties, position size, bounds, frame center, uh, transformations, which is sort of what you were talking about, Jaime, right? Yeah, and then way down on uh, chapters 20 and 22 have, or 20, sorry, 22, 23 are new. And one of the first ones that's new is getting started with UI View Property Animator. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, there we go. Okay. This is why it looked familiar. UI view property animator view controller transitions. That's where I saw it in a code review. It was transitioning mm-hmm. from from one view controller to another in a, in a custom sort of way. So which version of the book are you looking at? I am looking at the one you have uh, in the show notes. It says platform iOS 11, available for $54.99. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm actually looking at the PDF, but I don't have that version downloaded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll suggest people look at that. We'll follow up tomorrow. or tomorrow. We'll follow up next week on this and uh, let you know what we think. So what else we got for uh, Ask MTGC follow-up? Let's see. We've got one from Dan Beauregard who says, regarding the iPad 2018 screen protector in no notch, I would hazard a guess that the photo was created from a screenshot which always shows the home bar, but no notch, either faked from an iPhone 10 or real from new iPad. Yeah, this is referencing last week. We had that uh, guard or something, screen protector on Amazon. And we said, hmm, they're either uh, in the know, they're like, you know, uh, Chinese manufacturing partners, or they're going to have to take the hole punch and punch out a spot for the Touch ID uh, come July. Yeah, but so like we were saying too, I was sort of thinking about this because Dan and I were exchanging a few points on that, um, that uh, they don't really need to have a notch on the iPad because they've got the bezel right around the outside, right? And, um, oh wait, I have an iPad right here. Let's have a look at it. Uh, funny where the camera is. Yeah, so the camera on the iPad is is in the bezel. I'm looking at my iPad Pro, right? So you know, you've got the home button at the bottom with the Touch ID sensor, and then the um, and then you've got the camera uh, punch out in the in the top of the screen. So, but if they were doing sort of a, a larger uh, screen like it showed in the picture, um, although why would they put the screen the camera right in the middle of the screen if they have a bezel? Doesn't make sense. Well, I mean, what I'm saying is that's why they wouldn't necessarily need, need a notch because if you're going to have um, Face ID, you know, to open 
open the to iPad, you know, you need to have the true depth camera facing forward, right? As well as a camera for regular um, selfies and stuff, right? Yeah. So, and I think the the space is not quite as a, at a premium on an iPad as it would yeah, be on yeah. an iPhone where you you want pocketability, right? Like, trust me, I've lived the, the iPhone 6 Plus and 7 Plus life for a long time. And it, it still astounds me to this day that I can use the iPhone 10 as a normal pocketable device, yet still feel yeah. like I don't really lose that much from the Plus. So, so I did some real world tests. I don't, I don't know if we've mentioned on the show in the past, but, you know, we have a nice big bathtub upstairs and every now and then I get aches and pains and jump in the bath before I go to bed. And I, because I'm, you know, of the, the cautious type, I have a couple of Ziploc bags upstairs and I put my, my iPhone or whatever I'm using in at the time inside a Ziploc bag. And so I put my iPhone 10 in a Ziploc bag the other day. And, uh, you know, um, every other phone that I've ever had, even, even the Touch ID sensor works through the Ziploc bag, right? But Face ID didn't work. And I suspect it's because the plastic does something to the infrared uh, array capture, right? So it can't recognize my face. I had to use, you know, I had to use the pin code like a, like an animal. But um, so my theory about why this particular uh, guard that we're looking at here has a hole in it is probably for the true depth camera. It doesn't have anything blocking the, the, the feed, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess on the plus side for your scenario, um, if you ever decide to try to unlock your phone while underwater in like Tahiti or something, <laughs> you've helped train the face ID for optical distortions. Maybe, maybe. I, w- I wonder if it's actually using two different light polarizations, the true, the true depth camera. Uh, yeah. It's using two different light polarizations and the, and the plastic actually messes with that. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it's, it's a, uh, I know it does an infrared, like in, in when I was doing my research for, for on the, the secure stuff, you know, in March, um, there's like a spray of 30,000 dots onto your face. And then I guess it must, re- it must capture those back again somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And then it makes a 3D model of your face to, and that's how it, how it recognizes who you are. And that's why you can't use a mask or photograph or whatever, right? It has to actually have a, has to have depth. But I think it also compares that with a, uh, an image of your face that it takes with the, with another camera or the same camera. I don't know. Mm, don't know. But you're right. Maybe it's a double capture kind of scenario, right? Yeah. But one thing we now do know for sure, Tim, is that you're so addicted to your devices that you can't even stop using them while you're taking a bath. <laughs> what else are you going to do in a bath? Like, yeah. you know, can't, I, well, I usually, I usually go up there and, and, you know, have my Audible book on there and, and stuff like that. But, when you, you know, getting out of the bath, you, you inadvertently splash water on the device. So, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I usually have a nice soothing, you know, book reading to me or something like that while I'm in the tub. All right. Um, and one more, Jaime? Yes. This one appears to be a chain, but I'll, I'll go over the last one. This is uh, Kelly H. Wilkerson, who was chatting with you. Um, this, is, uh, this is a little bit of a blast from the past because this probably sure would have been helpful for you when you were uh, dealing with the backup problems on your iPhone. It's uh, uh, She's referring to a post on uh, a particularly bad early iOS 10 backup encryption bug. And then there's a link there as well. And then another link is her uh, latest updated discussion of corrupt or not compatible during backup and restore. And looking at these links, these, uh, these do come from uh, 2016 and a new one in 2018. So many, many moons ago when we got our new devices, we were having different kinds of trouble. Uh, I had trouble with my encrypted backup going from my iPhone 7 Plus to my iPhone 10, where like it only sort of half came over. And then yours, Tim, remind me, did you have to start fresh again on yours? Yeah, so initially, I was, I was going from a 6, so I had an encrypted backup, and I was going from a 6 to the iPhone 10, and it, it just failed right out of the box. I tried it a number of times, and then eventually what I did was, because I knew the 6, I had it, you know, I was I was moving away from it, so the 6, in, in a sense, was a backup, right? Um, I mean, I 
I wasn't getting rid of the phone right away. So I turned off the encryption and made a new backup. I just went I went into where the backups are stored and you know changed the name on the folder so that it would it would think it hadn't done a backup before. So I did a, a pure backup, unencrypted. And when I did the unencrypted backup, I was able to restore it to the other the other the other device. So the new iPhone 10, and that's in keeping again with that sort of uh, exploration I was doing into secure secure ID and all that kind of stuff. Um, is that the hardware like the way the phone by default works is is it encrypts things with a hardware key that's that's built into the into the logic board or into the chip, right? So you can't if you encrypt something with that um, credential, you can't restore it to another device which would have another key, right? A different key. So the the I guess this is kind of like the private key for the for the backup um, won't restore to an to another device. So I'm not sure if that was by design or maybe it's different when I mean Apple really wants us to move to iCloud for backup, right? They they encrypted on on the iCloud as opposed to encrypting it on the device or on a, on a backup drive or whatever. That was my case there, but but she's talking about um, in her in her blog post here. Um, I think she has a, a service or something where she talks about uh, Decipher Media is, is the name of her company, I think. Or um, she's talking about um, being able to restore corru- from corrupted backups, not necessarily encrypted backups, right? So she's got a number of tools. So you see, she's a developer and she's written all these tools for um, repairing and uh, you know deciphering your backups and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and this is interesting. I bet you ran into one of these. So uh, this is from the 2016 blog post about, you know, person makes an encrypted backup, backup goes for a bit, fails because there isn't enough space on the hard drive. Right. And you try to do the backup again, it succeeds, you move on with your life like a normal person. Uh, at that point, the backup is silently broken. Um, I know as you, you manage the, the multitude of files for this very show and many other things, uh, I know you and I have talked about your challenges with uh, data storage. So like, I wouldn't be surprised yeah, if you space, yeah. ran into this along the way. No, I actually back up to a, I back up to a, a second drive. Like to a, I have a two terabyte drive that I that I back up to. But I don't actually I don't, I don't even keep the backup of my phones on my Mac. I, there's a way if you there was a post on MacWorld a while ago about changing. You basically create a symbolic link to your external drive, and then you can back up when when iTunes fires up. As long as you have the drive plugged in, iTunes will find your backup folder on the external drive, and it'll back your phones up over there. So I've always had a problem with combined. Like my phone is a two fifty six gig phone, I think, and my my iPad is a 128 gig and then you know my my I have a meager 512 SSD on my uh, on my MacBook Air and of course there's not enough room for the OS and Xcode and all of its baggage as well as well as being able to back up the devices right so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I'm not a fan of iCloud backup I don't want to keep my stuff in in space you know I'd rather have it on the drive indeed indeed well thank you to everybody for sending those to us at uh, either at mtjc underscore podcast or hashtag askmtjc on Twitter for sure for sure. All right. Well, let's get back to the shoe. So we have some follow-up. Well, follow-up, we talked about T-shirts. We I picked up the T-shirts today. Oh, how'd they come out? Good. They, they didn't screw up the thing under the J this time. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So they, they, they look... Uh, I'd have to get a computer that's space gray to see how gray they look, but they're they're pretty close, I think. They're sort of, they're sort of a medium to light gray kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know? Space gray, of course, space right? Gray. Yeah, space, space gray. Space gray is kind e. of a darker gray, though, no, compared to the uh, the titanium, right? Um, You mean the the color of the original silverish? Silverish MacBooks. Yeah, yeah they, I would. I, they call that they call that silver because we have a couple of those uh, 
the Macs that work. Maybe they're a little lighter than, than these. Like it's, it's darker than the color of my MacBook Airs. Oh, okay. Yeah. So. Is it the same color as the new MacBook Pro? Uh, yeah, is that space gray? gray? I think it is, right? Yeah, the new one. The, well, the newer ones. Yeah, I think so. Okay, cool. Yeah, oh, they look good. Mm-hmm. They're solid, too. I, 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 sometimes you get gray shirt. Like we, the, I'm wearing their Wig Render like shirt right now. And it's, it's, it's actually um, it's a knitted weave where they have like a light fabric, like a white almost, and a, and a dark gray. Mm. And so it kind of gets that sort of, you know, um, half gray, half black kind of look to it. It still looks like gray to your eye. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it close, it's got like white threads in it. Well, this is this one is a solid, like it's dyed um, the color you want, right? Sort mm-hmm. of thing. Either that or it's made from a f- dyed fabric probably with the same color thread. So mm-hmm. I'm sure Carol could explain it to me much better than I just did. But she's not here and she's not on this podcast. So there you go. So I'll send some down to you, Mark. For uh, And I've set up the store for people to purchase them. If you guys want to purchase them, that's fine. But I'll send you some extras to give away. Okay. And uh, yeah, so I set up a store. I set up the t-shirt on the store. I also set up the the um, store on Teespring too. So if people want to get them printed in the UK, they can. It'll be easier to ship them because they probably have, I don't know what they have to pay to ship them from from my house to them. There it'll be more anyway. Right, send the link. Oh, it's okay. Here, I'll put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. That would be perfect because we can talk about it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Do that right now. I mean, as like specifically for you know, it'll be in the show notes. Aren't we talking about it now? Yeah. Okay, so I'm guessing the women's shirt looks exactly like the men's, just cut a little bit differently. Yeah, yeah, and I, and so um, I had some mediums left over from last year, so I, I had, it's a good thing I did that. I, I got ladies large and ladies small. The, med, the men's medium is sort of in between the two sizes, so you know, like Tammy likes to wear a men's large, so that's kind of because she likes she likes them loose, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and most of the women want smalls. I surprised I, I had more requests for smalls than I actually had last year, so I did finally get one to our super fan Katie. I met her at uh, our WD. I've kind of give it to her personally so yeah the ones that you gave me the women's women's in general shirts mm-hmm. went out pretty fast oh yeah so i really? might have like one one men's large and one men's extra large and i can't even remember if they're the same same model oh, you mean you or if it's the, the different shirts i have to pull them out of the closet next time i'm going to a meetup Looking at the space gray, I'm kind of hoping that Apple will come up with some funky new color that we can use <laughs> next year. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Uh, well, I, I like the of it now available in space gray because that ties into their keyboard and, and um, mouse thing. Did you see the picture I posted on on um, Twitter this afternoon? That sort of shows the color. No, you know what? I didn't. So here I'll post it, post in the show notes my tweet so you can see the pictures. So if you look at those, that's from MTJC this tweet. But if you look at the picture of the T-shirt, it's closer to the color. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. Thing. Anyway, so that's our T-shirts are coming. Well, so you have something here from about uh, TensorFlow, Jaime? Yes, this is follow up to maybe two episodes ago, I think now, where we talked about the fact that uh, Swift for TensorFlow was going to be open sourced. It, it is now open source, and we'll have that link in the show notes for you, uh, those of you who are driving at home. It is at uh, GitHub.com slash TensorFlow slash Swift. And so we were just talking about it going to be. It wasn't. It wasn't um, available at that point in time. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. No, at that point, Chris Latner's video, the one that we had in the show notes two weeks ago, I think, or however, it, it was within the last month for sure. Um, when Google was doing its whole uh, TensorFlow event, I guess. I can't remember if it was like a conference right. or if it was more like a press release, whatever it was. In any case, we talked about the fact that it, it would be open sourced, and now it is. And looking at the GitHub thing here, it's apparently a um, 
it's a fork of sort of like the official you know apple swift um github project but as they say right here i don't know about midway down the page it's not intended to remain a long-term fork uh, as it matures they want to merge it back upstream into the official swift.org repositories nice so do you think here here's a, here's where our brains explode do you think we'll see chris latner on at the keynote at google io at google io I, I could see that that's next week you know i could see that especially if they do something related to you know a, a new tool for tensorflow that sure. uh, that hooks into android studio or something let's say you know and you bring yeah. out somebody say and it also works in swift you know not only kotlin <laughs> and java you know that sort of thing yeah i went to google io last year and there, there was actually quite a bit about tensorflow and machine learning in general yeah uh so yeah it wouldn't surprise me uh it, it also wouldn't surprise me if if we didn't see anything because it's it's not a you know big enough splash from the overall picture uh as far as google is concerned but uh but maybe well they had that root 86 what was it 86 or um that todd was talking about the last couple of years at both uh, google ios sort of the mac or the ios uh development stuff that that uh, google was putting together indeed and, and we did talk about that that's technically not from the keynote i think it was part of the sessions right after um oh, okay from what i recall of io they don't really have the same structure where you know wwdc has the keynote which is a little bit for developers but it kind of is more press and uh, average person friendly and they hint at some of the stuff that will be for developers and then the platform state of the union is sort of like the keynote for developers right like here's all these cool technologies you're gonna be able to use google's is a little different in that they'll they'll have the keynote um it is all over the place between very developer friendly versus very press and sort of average person friendly and then they immediately jump into their different tracks and sessions something like you know using blah 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 on ios for example Uh, because their their conference is only like two or three days so it's a little bit yeah smaller than wwdc in terms of uh, number of days Mm -hmm. yeah so this is another story and this this it's interesting that the talk about marzipan and stuff like that that we've been having for the last little while it seems to be that the rumor mill is now saying that uh if apple in fact does any kind of um cross between app kit and ui kit or between mac os and ios uh it's not going to happen this year at wwdc 2018 it might be next year in 2019 again who knows hard to say right Uh, daniel steinberg had an interesting post today where he talked about uh he kind of blurred the the line between the, the earnings report, which we'll get into a few in a few minutes, as well as you know where this marzipan thing is going and um, and who's sort of got the finger on the pulse. It used to be Walt, Walt Marsberg uh, that Apple would sort of feed information through, and now it seems to be possibly uh, John Gruber. Um, so it remains to be seen what where they'll go with this. But um, um, he's thinking that might you know Daniel Steinberg postulated that it might, might be uh, um, some sort of um, bridging technology between the two AppKit and UIKit that might might be something that that. Kind comes out of this right so yeah i'm curious to see what what other folks think about uh like the two halves right there's the uh what do we think about the impact on this year's wwdc uh because you know if this thing moves to 2019 as well as what was rumored before to be a ui refresh that also got moved for separate reasons to 2019 and then the other sort of half of it is this idea of declarative ui right okay let's take the first half of what i said it's it makes me wonder like well what exactly is going to be at wwdc this year right like we 
we had thought for a while, okay, it's going to be like a, it's about time for a UI refresh, you know, the, the iOS seven vacation round two, um, that got moved to 2019 there, you know, real Apple's really focusing, uh, as we've heard on, you know, stability, you know, and, and getting things, uh, you know, some spit and polish cleaned up. And then we heard about Marzipan about, Oh, you have some sort of way to make it easier for you to write for Mac OS and iOS. Oh, that, that sounds cool. And that wouldn't necessarily require, you know, UI refresh. If you, you could set the stage now, you know, build, build your stuff with Marzipan. And, and then next year, like if you use standard Marzipan widgets, it just, it seamlessly goes into dark mode or whatever it is that they're going to do for the refresh with both of those things cut out. I'm sort of wondering what sort of tricks do they have up their sleeve that will make WWDC exciting? You know, we had AR kit and Coromel and that was certainly very exciting. What will be the equivalent for this year is, is something I'm I'm at a loss. I, I'm not even sure I can speculate. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, maybe they'll do tab bar kit or something like that. Um, Self-driving car and everyone who goes will get one free. <laughs> That'd be such a bummer <laughs> for me because I did put it in. <laughs> Mark doing donuts and sending us a video. <laughs> Did you guys hear the F8 keynote yesterday? The they gave away the the new low end um, VR headset that they've come up with. They gave one to everybody who's at, at the F8. Oculus Go. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh wow, I didn't know that. So I found Daniel's article here. He's he was joking about the fact that you know like they might announce that um or somebody in the media will say that Apple's going to have uh, the iPhone nine will open will fo- fold out into a you know a flying scooter you know and then people will complain later that the the the, the what the stuff they presented didn't really sort of fly you know. No, Where's my Where's my flying scooter? Right. Oh, I pasted it in the wrong place. But anyways, it's on the page. Um, yeah, I, I think the other half that has me interested is this idea of a, a declarative UI. Um, yeah. I'll read here the, at the bottom of this 9to5Mac post. Uh, apparently, this is a quote from Mark Gurman. This initiative likely intends to replace nib files with Swift, linked to Interface Builder, which could allow developers to declare their UIs by hand or by using the existing visual tools, much like XAML on Windows. That's weird. I, I think I'm kind of for that. I, certainly, if people have uh, listened to the show long enough, oh, there, there's a new uh, there's a new quiz question. How many times in all 193 episodes has Jaime complained about the fact that the backing files for interface builder stuff like nibs and storyboards is sort of XML, but it's really not XML because it it's XML is the new binary sort of format as opposed to what you see, uh, let's say in our in our sibling ecosystem of Android, where there's layout stuff. Actually, it, it is legitimate XML that you like a human being can read and sure, if yeah, you end up yeah. with a conflict you can merge that and get like very easily instead of recreating stuff as i've sadly been forced to do like an animal um many moons ago i feel like something like that would be nice they put so much effort into introverse builder i, I don't see that I, I mean like i get the whole yes we can do it all in code and we used to do it all in code before blah 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 blah. but you know mark back me up on this they've been they've been putting so much information you know tooling into you know auto layout and size classes and and different ways of, of making interface builder work with with the different sizes and UIs and whatever tools, you know, dynamic types and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, what's that other thing? Um, uh, IB, was it IB definable? The one where you can uh, define custom uh, properties and read them back in an interface builder. IB, IB designable de- stuff? IB, IB designable, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. You know, they, they've got all that sort of, inter, you know, interplay between interface builder and the, the application. Why would they all of a sudden come up with something that's like all in code? That doesn't make well, any sense. Well, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. I mean, it's possible that you could have all of the IB tools working exactly the same way 
as they do right now, but the underlying files, because because Interface Builder does save text files, right, for everything you do. And it's true that they are big and bulky and, and hard to merge and, and hard to read and just kind of, you know, the it's it's there's some ugliness under the, the wonderfulness that is Interface Builder. And I mean, I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean that uh, seriously. I, I, I love Interface Builder, but the, the files under the hood are kind of nasty. So it's possible that they could redefine that format into something that is more reasonable. Um, and, you know, it's, I mean, it's possible, it's possible that it could even be generating Swift code, uh, mm. which I guess would be, you know, the best of both worlds for people who want to do stuff programmatically. Uh, it, it would, it would actually be kind of cool if you could, if you could edit the Swift code under, underneath and have the changes appear in interface builder. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if this is doable or if this is, if this is, uh, what they're talking about, but it would be kind of interesting to see. Yeah, let, let's go down that route for a little bit because I want to, like, the replaced with Swift kind of threw me off until you said something just right now, Mark, that made me say, oh, aha, he, maybe this is what it is. So let me set the stage. So on the Android side for Android Studio, again, you know, Android's layout is generally done with this, this XML uh, stuff, uh, very human, very human readable XML. Like you can say, oh, uh, this is like a list and this is a grid and here's a button and here's an image, you know, that sort of thing. Android Studio has an interface builder-ish sort of thing where side by side you can see the XML and then you can see how that renders and you can change one or the other and you'll see the other updating, which is really cool. So if you extend that based on, I don't know, uh, some generics thing or some sort of um, like, I don't know, uh, what do they call it? Domain specific language sort of thing within Swift that is specific to UI stuff. You know, if you've ever seen, oh my gosh, what is it? I think it's a Facebook project. There's uh, Facebook Bricks or Widget or something where you, you define a layout use, using code that looks like, oh, um, it's sort of either JSON-ish or HTML-ish, depending on, on how you feel about it. You say, oh, okay, this is a grid and this other thing is a list and this thing has a button in it and it anchors to the left and this one anchors in the center. I wonder if that's what's being talked about here because all of that would actually be pretty exciting if you could have something that was you know a little bit nicer to use as, as great as stack views are if you had something that was just a little bit more, just a little bit more on top of that, to, you know, to keep size classes and all these other wonderful things related to auto layout and stack views. We've made it like that next level. Oh, you know, we can make it even simpler and easier to understand what's going on without having to sort of become human compilers to think, okay, what is this going to look like on screen, you know, and, and bridge that, finally bridge that gap between folks who really love using the power of code versus folks who really love using the power of interface builder. It's true. Like, I mean, I was going to ask you though, how many, how many Android developers do you know that use the, the GUI version of, of building UI? Most of them I know use code, right? They write their, they write their XML. Um, and, and you can totally write, you know, all of your UI in, in, um, in Objective-C or Swift. I mean, it's been done for years, but like, if you try and try and code a button sometime, you'll find that, you know, you need like 15 lines to do what you can do by just dragging a button onto the screen and you in, in interface builder. So there's so much more economy there. And I'm also thinking too, there was that, that product 
product by that guy in Europe. Um, the same name as a printing press or a plate setter. It begins with a C. Anyway, it, it, I wonder if he's doing the same sort of thing because he's created a new sort of UI uh, where you drag and drop elements onto the screen. You could drag an entire table view on and it's you know already there and the cells are all and you, pro, you basically can enter in values like you would do in say a keynote or, or PowerPoint kind of thing and it would generate the code for you. Um, didn't really generate anything. You could edit an Xcode per se but you could build apps with it, right? Creo, right? Um, that app Creo and, and basically it's like a, an app it's like an app for writing writing apps for iOS but you don't really it's not they're not exportable to Xcode or anything like that, right? But um, he's done the same sort of thing. Maybe he's sort of cracked the, the nut on what uh, what you know the interfaces builder is doing under the hood to build the code to make the UI for your device, right? Um, by having the cooker like you know sort of like Lego units that you sort of pop onto the screen and build your UI, right? Same with Paint Code. Paint Code does the same thing, but Paint Code actually outputs the code, right, for your uh, for your effects, right? <laughs> so yeah, so whatever. I mean, but it, I mean, I've done a little bit of Mac OS programming, and Mark, have you done any at all or a little bit? Yeah, it's 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 just it's similar, but it's slightly different. Parallel. I mean, you know, yeah. because you have the whole menu thing and you have mouse events and keyboard events um, that are a little that add a little bit more complexity to it. And and I think that the AppKit tools are a little, or sort of just generally writing Mac OS code is much older in in a sense than than writing for iOS, right? And that's I guess that's what people complain about AppKit per se, right? That it's not as fluid as as um, say uh, writing for iOS, right? Right. Yeah. So I mean, that's maybe that's where maybe this marzipan product is going to come in is in terms of you know making making a bridging technology right rather than replacing one or the other yeah i i could see that and and even if it covered sort of the 80 percent case where you know there there are just some things that don't really translate too well between ios and mac os like there isn't like a an equivalent yeah. uh from one to the other uh if you had to drop in you know to your respective platforms code to deal with that at least it would get you more of the way there and you know it might encourage folks to to do more of the you know, cross-platform between mac os and ios style development where um i don't know there it feels like there's a ton of of mac apps that i'd love to see on ios and vice versa but depending on you know market and sort of uh opportunity that people have to to try to get through all the cruft of like okay i don't really know this other thing um how do i deal with that if there was some easier way for them to sort of get their feet sort of wet in both i think that might be really nice well one thing that's for sure is if uh, ios apps are going to run on the mac we're going to need more size classes so i'm i'm hoping for more size classes in in this domain <laughs> see been saying that for a while we just don't have enough to even to handle all the existing phones oh i see what you mean yeah 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 mm-hmm. well there's, it's funny there's always sort of been every every iteration of xcode and ios has always been one or two devices that that wasn't really clear i mean notwithstanding you know ipad being paint, painted with one brush whether you're in portrait or landscape but like i mean the iphone 5 when the iphone 5 came out we always had a hard time sort of figuring out whether the ui you were designing was going to go and this is before size classes right um and i think auto it was was really new and really hard to use but you know i remember having to you know try and figure out the you get to take the the device ui device and you figure out what the sc- the window size was or the screen size was to determine if you were looking at a, a 560 is it 568 points high yep. device yep. was was an iphone 5 and then oh let's do this and yeah, as opposed to that 
and yeah, there was no there was no built-in way of detecting whether you were on a other than looking at the size of the of the window. There was no right. built-in way to tell which whether you were on a four-inch device or a three point seven five-inch device. Right, but at the same time, though, they also had that paradigm, and in, in, I guess in, in UI device, I forget what it's called, what the property is now, but you could always tell between iPhone and iPad. But again, at that you had that third sort of you know odd sort of iPhone. So you 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 know your app would behave. You'd lay out your app and, and your code one way if it was iPad, another way if it's iPhone, and specifically if it was iPhone five, and it was it was it was ugly, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a lot of work. And then they came out with iOS, or iOS seven just to mess this up. So then you had to do six and seven and iPhone and iPad, and then whether it's a five inch phone or very iPhone five and four and a half versus four screen, yuck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think the Mark's Which point is uh, exactly why they need more size classes. Yeah, yeah. To, to Mark's point, and I think we briefly touched about it, on, touched on it um, one or two episodes ago. It sort of works okay, and, and it certainly worked, you know, beautifully when they came out. And then you had weird ducks like the Plus model that sort of throws out the window what an iPhone size class would normally be. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. the 12.9 inch iPad Pro does the same to an iPad. And then the iPhone 10 is kind of somewhere in between in terms of weirdness of like, well, it's it's kind of sized like this, but I've got this area I have to worry about and how that will visually look, even if it's sort of structurally okay by using safe area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Anywho, friend of the show, uh, Manoj Pekaderi has also pointed out yesterday, today actually, he pointed out an article to me from Mac Rumors uh, talking about, uh, I think it's it's sort of follow-up to what we were talking about uh, before. It's, again, the uh, j- folks over at Jamp who are talking to Enterprise Enterprise users about uh, their choices of whether they want Mac or um, Windows or iOS versus Android or even BlackBerry. And um, this is sort of goes in in, in stream with that whole sort of, uh, I think it was 2016 uh, keynote by the gentleman from IBM who's in charge of sort of deployment. Um, and so the numbers, the, the easy numbers are that the TLDR is that 52% of enterprise employees would choose a Mac over a PC and 75% of those would choose an iOS device over an Android device and it just goes into not much detail here in this po- in this post but uh, some nice looking charts in terms of you know how big that looks in terms of the difference between what people are choosing um, and then of course I've got a link back to the jamp uh, jamp website to talk about uh, what people are choosing so you know being things I work in enterprise now it's kind of um, not surprising to me since I've been working with Mac forever but um, it's interesting to see these kind of numbers that, that this is the way people are kind of choosing um, which way they want to go whether it's Mac versus Windows iOS versus Android. So, when given the choice, like when the given way the I choice, read this, yes, yeah. you know, uh, only 52%, so 58%, uh, sorry, uh, 48% don't allow yeah. them to choose so that you, you either gets the Mac or you gets a PC. And then likewise, 51% don't let you choose a mobile device. You get your iPhone or your more likely Android. Uh, but when given the choice, it's interesting to see what people do. It, it feels like the, um, like the meal ticket sort of thing. If you're at a company event where they do that sort of thing where, well, you can have this salad with the meal ticket, or you can have this filet mignon. Which one would you right. like? Well, surprise, surprise, guess which one I choose every time. Uh, if, it's, if it's coming free, I'm going to choose the premium one. Yeah. Do you think people are choosing that because they think that Mac is premium versus Windows? I mean, maybe. I, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe they really do like those sorts of things. I mean, I'd, I'd like to see what these people are, you know, following these cohorts. Like, what are people doing in their own lives? Um, is it, do these people, do they hate, do they hate Windows 10? Uh, do they feel like, oh man, like, I, I always wanted to learn how to use a Mac and if I'm going to choose a Mac because I have this opportunity that, you know, the company's paying for me to learn how to use one essentially rather than me buying my own and then being yeah. sort of flustered. Well, I mean, a lot of the arguments I've had with people over the years of who coming from Windows to Mac is they don't want to give up their, their tools or they're used to their sort of, you know, um, for better, for worse. Uh, it's a devil they know, I like to say, right? But it's 
funny though. I, I, you know, I have to admit, I've always said that you know Sony and Lenovo and and um, those sort of higher brand PCs, the ones that cost more, are, are as well made as as Apple uh, tends to be. And they're not you know unibody aluminum block carved devices. But so I mean, I just got moved over to a Windows 10 device a couple of weeks ago, and uh, so last week I was I was homesick, and um, so I couldn't. I, I, but I didn't bring my my uh, managed Mac home, which I could use on the VPN. So I had my Windows 10 machine here. So I spent you know two days working on Windows 10, and I gotta say it's compared to you know all my experiences from Windows 3.1 or 3.4 of what it was all the way through Windows NT, all through you know 98 and and uh, 95 and XP, and um, I don't think I ever worked on uh, Windows 7 very. Oh, I had Windows 7 up until just recently, but Windows 10 actually is a not bad operating system. Finally, you know compared to compared to what we have on on Apple, it's not quite as as slick and intuitive and stuff like that, but it doesn't it doesn't suck as much as it used to, right? I don't know if you guys have played with Windows at all in your lives, but recently or or any time like that. Not recently, but I do have to say that it doesn't suck as much as it used to used to. Isn't a ringing endorsement there? Too. <laughs> no, yeah, no. I, well, I'm, I'm I'm you know if I if I, I I mean I wouldn't be working where I'm working now if they hadn't handed me a Mac on day one. If that wasn't if, like I I wouldn't even thought of applying for a job at this place because if 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 it was the choice was going to be you're going to work on a Windows device is one of the reasons why I never really sort of thought about working in enterprise because I figured they'd hand me a PC and I'd be miserable, right? So and what I'm saying is that, you know, as much as as much as Windows 10 um, and this this Lenovo um, device I've got is fairly fairly recent. It's even got a touchscreen on it, which I'm not so sure about. But um, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's actually, it's not, I wouldn't say it's pleasant. It's not as nice. I mean, I can do tons more on a Mac than I can on a Windows device. But uh, but given that I was doing my job, as it were, and which, was, which wasn't, and I wasn't writing code. It was, you know, basically doing email and, and looking up stuff on the wiki and stuff like that and communicating with people on link and things like that and dialing into meetings and things. It was, it could have been, I mean, the Windows 7 machine I had up until then was, was clunky and fuggly and whatever, right? So, so Windows 10 wasn't, wasn't, isn't, isn't horrible. It's horrible as it used to be. Anyway, um, moving on. Uh, oh, this is an interesting one. I don't know if you guys uh, saw this article. It's one of the post blog posts from Matt Triple T Thompson. Um, uh, benchmarking codable. Um, it, what's interesting, though, I mean, I was more interested in, in the numbers than than um, the way it works. But he was uh, uh, talking about you know if you're pulling in a lot of data. And in this case, here he's pulling in uh, airport information. In the example he's got here, um, and talking about how if you're pulling in one record or ten records or a hundred records is one thing. But if you're bringing in ten thousand records. Um, the time it takes to uh, first of all the size you're dealing with in terms of your your API call. I mean, uh, it doesn't sound like much, but a 3.2 megabyte file, you know, adds size to your application as well as um, uh, I mean, how much memory you're using, and uh, as well um, also time to deal with that, right? Um, and in the bottom piece, if you skim down to the bottom of the article, it talks about execution time, and it turns out JSON serialization versus Codable. Codable takes um, you know almost a quarter longer. Uh, to to um, to work than than um, JSON and serialization, but I don't think that's a good reason to not look at Codable. I think Codable is by itself is is a much slicker way to work with uh, um, JSON. I don't know if you guys have done that much. It's more than it. a quarter longer, from what I'm seeing. I'm looking at the table at the bottom. Maybe two thirds, I guess. Yeah, from three eighty two to six oh three. It's math, man. Yeah, no, that's uh, uh, something like sixty uh, percent uh, slower. Well, no, yeah, yeah. Anywho, but. but 
but the, again, that's with a large, large, large data set, right? So yeah. yeah. Well, look at thirty versus fifty-one. That's almost almost double. Not quite almost double, but yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, well, right. I, would, I would say two thirds, roughly, sort of visually how it looks to me. Mind you, three eighty-two is almost four hundred to six hundred. Yeah, so it's six to four. How about that, or five to three? <laughs> For the example you guys are talking about, the ten thousand JSON items. I did the math. It is about fifty-seven percent. Fifty-seven. Okay. Difference. So so winging Thank it at you. about sixty is is about right. It's close enough, right? Horseshoes and hand grenades sort of thing. Um, it's a very interesting article. I, I, one, I definitely love seeing uh, the NS hipster style writing back again. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very well written. It's very pleasant to read. It's not a very long read, which is good. And I think it comes to a, a very pragmatic conclusion of, you know, we, we've said before in the show, there is a price to magic. It's just as true yeah. in Dungeons and Dragons as it is in software. And in this case, it seems to me that for most cases, that price isn't that bad. And it is as totally worth the developer time that is saved, you know, in not having to write uh, that stuff or you know, mm-hmm. build a sorcery template or something. But yet it, it's still very pragmatic in that it says like, look, do some benchmarking and, and see if your particular case, maybe JSON serialization is the right route for you because you need that performance boost. Right. Yeah. It could also be that, you know, by sticking to Codable too, you're, you're going to see the benefits coming from future versions of the OS and, and hardware from Apple. You know, you know, I'm sure they must realize that, that uh, there's a performance hit here and, and you would think in future they would address it, whereas if you go down to some third-party route or whatever, you run into all those other dependencies as well, right? So... Yeah, and I also think like we'll start to see tons of performance gains when Swift hits the uh, ABI stability. Right, yeah. Because at that point, they'll they'll know that, okay, look, look there's not going to be crazy changes. All right, string is a collection. No, it's not. It's totally a collection now. Again, you know, stuff that would be hard to invest in a lot of performance tuning. Um, I imagine we'll see that really, really happen when ABI stability hits in some future iteration of Swift, hopefully soon. And you're right. I think stuff like mm-hmm. Codable will probably be one of the big areas that uh, the folks at Apple will really, really hunker down on and say, okay, this is something that's really common. How can we squeeze performance out of it? Mark, what do you got for the Apple earnings talk? So uh, as of today, when we're recording this on Wednesday, uh, so the Apple released their earnings yesterday uh, on Tuesday. And uh, contrary to what the pundits were saying, uh, Apple is not doomed. In fact, it turns out that things are pretty good. Uh, The earnings were, uh, let's see, so earnings per share, Apple beat the estimates. Uh, they were $2.73 versus $2.67, which was the analyst consensus uh, per share. Revenue was $61.1 billion versus $60.82 billion. Now, it is true that iPhone unit sales were down compared to estimates. They were $52.2 million versus $52.54 million, uh, which is, you know, not a huge amount. Uh, and uh, the Guidances are in a range of 51.5 billion to 53.5 billion versus the consensus was 51.61 billion, which is right in line, if not even better. So yeah, overall it was a it was a great uh, report, and Apple's stock has responded as of today. It was up six or seven percent today. Uh, partially that's because Apple also increased their dividend, and mm-hmm. they're doing a hundred billion dollar uh, stock buyback. Which of course, uh, if Apple's buying back shares, it it may, generally makes the price of the stock go up because of supply and demand. So so it's looking pretty good for Apple shareholders right now. Uh, there's there's some argument 
argument that some people will make that, well, share buybacks are a little bit artificial and, you know, companies sometimes do that to cover up that business isn't so good, but I'm not really sure that's the case in this case. Uh, it may have more to do with the, uh, the amount of, uh, of overseas, uh, money that Apple had that they were able to repatriate because of, uh, some changes in the, in the tax laws here. But, but whatever the source, uh, Apple is, uh, doing very well by shareholders and overall the company seems to be doing as well as ever so things are good yep yeah there's some interesting numbers in here for me and actually some that were not in this article but i certainly heard people talking about it so let's talk about the iphone 10 um you know we certainly talked about you know gloom and doom from uh, supply chain you know estimates and stuff and uh, even though they didn't hit the estimate in terms of the average selling price for the iphone so i think wall street's was a little little high a little optimistic it's certainly not gloom and doom because you say well yeah. you know the average selling price with an iPhone was $728. That's slightly below the $742 that Wall Street wanted. But the thing that's missing for this article is something I read elsewhere, which is, you know, comparing against uh, year over year quarters, it's up from like $639. Because remember, Apple sells, uh, of course, $649 US phones. That's sort of the base price for the newest models. But let's not forget, they also have a very popular iPhone SE that people like, and that starts at $349. So leaning towards $728, you know, almost $100 more than the 649 what you would expect for brand new phones, implies heavily, like really heavily, the iPhone 10 is drawing in a ton of revenue and in yeah, enough numbers to sway the average. Or or the, uh, the higher memory versions of the 8 and 8 Plus. Those will skew higher too. Yes, th- those certainly help as well. Yes, no doubt. I think I saw... Right, it's interesting what Walt, Walt Mossberg was saying in his tweet here that uh, he pointed out that in the last two quarters, Apple has garnered nearly $100 billion in revenues just from the iPhone alone. And by comparison, Microsoft in an entire year did $90 billion last year in 2017. So the iPhone sales is doing really, really well still. So, And, and he, think, he did say at some point, or somebody said at some point, that the iPhone 10, uh, maybe it was in Daniel Schleinberg's post, um, that the iPhone 10 did really, really well, surprisingly. Most people were, you know, we were saying the last couple of weeks with all the cutbacks on manufacturing that um, they're thinking that, or people are thinking, outside of Apple obviously, are thinking that um, the iPhone 10 isn't doing as well as, as was expected, but in fact, it's done quite really well. Yeah, and those those manufacturing issues could be just normal cy- uh, cycles. They could be that uh, they overbuilt and have a lot of inventory, yeah. uh, or they could be just gearing up for the next one. Right. So we're cutting back on on uh, manufacturing of the of the current version. Yeah, the fi- iPhone 10G or something. Yeah. Yeah, I think nine is going to be the logical name. I think. Um, I mean, the 10 comes from the 10th anniversary, and we, I think we figured out before that it's what the 13th or 14th phone actually in reality right yeah but if they call it the next one nine what do they do what do they do next year yeah yeah you can't have a new <laughs> iphone 10 right well, they could call it 10 with a one zero to really throw people off then the people will be really scratching their head about you know, this, yeah. this phone the people at them. the verge will explode into a fiery rage if they have an iphone one zero ten and also have a x10 or or maybe they'll call it next year's model the the iphone x just to confuse everyone <laughs> just to really make it <laughs> <laughs> yeah or they do with the ipad 3 they'll just call it the new ipad or new iphone look at yeah call it the new well, iPhone. you know by next year maybe it'll be time to change the naming convention certainly possible. iphone lisa or start naming year. them after cats yeah um a couple other things in this uh, CNBC article. Um, 
gloom and doom over the HomePod as well. We certainly, we talked about precisely how many were they selling in that, that one really successful store in Idaho. Uh, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it says here that Apple's other products revenue was $3.9 billion, uh, higher than the Wall Street account uh, estimate of uh, 3.7, which uh, I don't know what to say there because it's, it's one of those mysterious areas that, that's really hard to read, you know, the stuff they lump into other. Um, very similarly, uh, apparently Tim Cook said that wearables like the Apple Watch and AirPods were up almost 50%, uh, but without disclosing mm. what that actual number is, right? So we, we really can't figure out, but um, anecdotally, that, that seems about right. I, I think uh, AirPods a little bit less frequently. I see them out sort of just randomly in the street versus, you know, at uh, tech conferences or tech meetups or something. But for sure, Apple Watch is something I notice on folks, that the just random folks. So I think it's really finding sort of that sweet spot of, of success. Sorry, were you saying you you see AirPods rarely? No, uh, uh, I, I see them, uh, but probably misstated that I see them more frequently, um, you know, as time goes on, but probably a little bit less frequently than I do Apple Watches. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. seeing a lot of a lot of them now these days. They seem to be cropping up all over the place. Yeah. I think the, the word of mouth probably helps there. You know, people always wonder, yeah. well, what's the comfort like? And if you have a friend you trust, you try them out and see. And also if you have a friend you trust and you're like, doesn't it fall out when you run? No, man, I ran the Boston Marathon. It's totally fine. Still got them good. Yeah. Yeah. So see, see, see here, here. They also said they sold 9 million, 9.1 million iPads um, and uh, 4 million Mac computers. So and services was up as well. It was 9.19 billion compared to the expected 8.39 billion. So continuing that trend that services is becoming a bigger part, bigger and bigger part of uh, Apple's right. business. Yeah. Doomed. Telling you yeah. know what we're yeah. going to do. <laughs> what are we going to do? We have to learn how to use Windows 10. Yeah. Um, I hear it doesn't suck as much as it used to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, have it on good authority, right? Yeah. Uh, all right. Oh, and this is a quick one here on uh, just on the uh, we were talking last week about uh, Marin mentioned Marin mentioned uh, folklore.org, which is the the blog by uh, um, uh, I forgot his name now. Uh, Andy, what's his name? Andy Mac guy. You know the guy from the original Mac. Uh, anyway, there's a new new post here just from a couple of days ago, actually, uh, written by Bill Atkinson, who I met at WWDC a couple of years ago. Uh, actually, guessed back in 20, 2014, I guess. Um, he's he posted a story about his his uh, time at Apple and how he was thankful to uh, Jeff Raskin for convincing him to go and talk to Steve Jobs and, and drop out of school and, and uh, go work for for Apple and, and, you know, write all the fabulous stuff that he wrote, the menus and stuff like that, as well as... It. And then and then when Steve left to go to work for... to start Next, he stayed around to do HyperCard. I think you probably you probably remember HyperCard, right, uh, Mark? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Oh, by the way, it's Andy Hertzfeld is the person's name I was trying to remember. Um, yeah, so interesting uh, sort of story here. And it's interesting that that folklore.org is still producing uh, fresh content. So this is just like as of a week ago. Because he talks about maybe 40 years ago, we started at Apple this, on April 27th. So I think it's what the day he published this, uh, this story. You know, this uh, the styling of this site is very web 1.0-ish. It's very sort of... Yeah, um, it's not great. No, yeah, true, true, true. Um, it, it's very charming. But I think if it was, if it was in a more um, modern format, I believe, without a doubt, the pull quote for the article would be inspired by a mind expanding LSD journey in 1985. Yeah. I designed the hypercard authoring system that enabled non programmers to make their own interactive media. I was just about to comment on that same line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't funny. quite, they don't quite write software the same way anymore. Do they? 
We have no way of knowing, Tim, but if, uh, <laughs> like, we're absolutely you you not no advocating no for mind-altering substances on the show. Just let that be very clear. However, yeah. it is interesting that you get stuff like uh, the Beatles' work, or if you enjoy Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll's work, uh, guess what? There were mind-altering substances involved in the creation of those. Mm-hmm. not saying it's a path to success. Certainly not saying people should do it, because certainly there are very, very terrible consequences for those. But uh, the fact of the matter is, stuff just happens, you know? Mm-hmm. And apparently the card happened because of LSD. I can neither confirm nor deny. Can I take the fifth? (laughs) You know, as a last note there, depending on what you consider mind-altering substances, I can guarantee that just about every developer or, you know, close to like 90%. Exactly, exactly. I enjoy a bit of coffee in the morning every day. It gets me going. Uh, I feel more productive. So if you were to remove that, would I still be as effective? I don't know. I have terrible sleeping habits, so probably not. Well, I used to drink a lot of coffee back in the day. And I'm, I'm down to like maybe one or two coffee cups of coffee today. In fact, lately I've been drinking tea more than coffee, but another story altogether. But you know, you you can get over it eventually. Mm-hmm. Next time, mm-hmm. yeah. All righty then. So, um, where's my notes? So you have something here about uh, Microsoft? Who are they? Oh wait, before we do that, we have a book winner. Woo-doo! We do. All the all the submissions are in for the quiz we yeah. mentioned from last week's episode. We had uh, Aaron Todorov on the show. We were raffling off uh, via the quiz, you know, your your answers to the quiz. We gave you an entry into the uh, randomly selected drawing, and we've mm-hmm. selected a winner of I Should Be a Better Host, and I Should Have the Book Prepared Here. <laughs> it is the, the Realm, uh, Realm by Tutorials, roughly, is the name of the book, no, the one we talked not. about last week. <laughs> uh, hang on, i get my Google form here. I, do, I want to read some of the answers that, that uh, the winner gave us, which is pretty good. So anyway, who's the winner? Or Jaime? The winner is a friend of the show, Adam Armstrong. Ooh. Adam Armstrong, if you listen to this episode, congrats. You have yeah. won the uh, the copy there, and, and we'll, uh, we'll we'll figure out how to get that to you. Um, yeah. But yes, congratulations on that. And, and Tim, you said you, you had answers there. That uh, Yeah, that some, so I just wanted to go through some of the questions we had here just real quick. Oh, uh, i got to go to responses. Yeah, so, um, well, we know his name already. He already gave us that. But so what animals were mentioned on the show in episode 192? So apparently... And, and correct me, correct this. I'm not sure about this one. This is a long answer. He said elephant, gazelle, birds, vapor. I don't know if vapor is an animal. Tadpole, nematode, fish, octopus, CNNMI, unicorns, raptors, bruins, cubs, bears, seahawks, dogs, chickens, and a rat. I don't remember talking about an elephant. Do you remember talking about an elephant? Uh, elephant in the room is probably where that came from. Elephant in the room. Mm. Okay. And then, yeah, and then raptors and bruins was the hockey reference, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this caused a discussion on the on the edges of animal like vapor is is an interesting one because it's in reference to the the tadpole salamander looking thing that's on the the ray winter book for uh vapor by right. tutorials i think it is and uh, but viper is a snake. Did, he, did he mention octopus no we definitely mentioned we definitely talked about octopus yeah core data exactly yeah yeah, yeah mark, well, mark took one. a little bit of uh uh interest in core data being represented by an octopus by an octopus i recall yeah. um yeah and i'm, I'm kind of curious on the boundaries of of animal if whether Seahawks count since there isn't like it's not like a real thing. You can't go find uh, a Pacific Northwest Seahawk, you know. Really? In in Elliott Bay, it's uh, I'd have to look this up to see what it is because I'm not, not a from real Seattle thing. originally. Oh, but seagulls does that not count? 
it, it's kind of like a seagull with mixed with um, yeah, native art from the Salish tribe, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, right. Really, really cool art, uh, native art. And it's just kind of a, a, a made up animal. It's a mythical animal is what I'm getting at. And they do have like a like an actual hawk that's at the games, um, like the mascot. But th- that's not a seahawk, right? It's not it's not like a thing that you'll see in uh, you know, a taxonomy of the animal kingdom. Sure. <laughs> what T-shirt was Hami wearing during the show? And it was, of course, the Realm World Tour T-shirt. Got that one right. Uh, who edited who edited the Xcode book that we mentioned on episode 182? And that, of course, was the new Xcode Treasures book. And it was edited by Tammy Goron, sometimes host, sometimes guest on this show. Um, I'm going to come back to this one. What did Mark say was uh, used was 8080 based last week? And it was he mentioned Texas Instruments. And um, I think Greg sort of said it was a particular model you were talking about, TRS-80. Well, so TRS-80 like is the one I was talking yeah. about. Okay, yeah. Did you, Which, did you remember? here's another trivia question. What does TRS stand for? I don't know. No idea. We'll, we'll, we'll let the fans enter that, answer that one. Um, well, nothing for answering it, by the way. And then how many times did Tim say sorry on the show? Well, technically, so in, in the little um, bit we were talking about, the Canadian committee thing, I said sorry three times. But technically, I played that at the beginning of the episode and in, and, and in the stream. So that's six times. And I did say sorry one more time during the show. So I think it's actually seven times. So. Yeah. yeah, this caused some controversy in the counting, too, as to <laughs> precisely what that number was. Yeah, well, it's either three, it's either four or, or seven. So depending on how you, how, you, how you slice it, right? Yeah, so we, we won't take away the book, but Texas Instruments is wrong. <laughs> oh, is it really? <laughs> yeah. 8080? Yeah. So, well, the 8080 was the chip made by Intel. And right. the TRS-80, uh, hence my trivia question, stands for Tandy Radio Shack. Oh. It was oh. made by Radio Shack, which was acquired oh. by Tandy. Wow. Not Texas huh. Instruments. Yeah, I would have guessed oh. like a Tandy. Never would but have guessed you, Tandy Radio Shack. Didn't we say I'd or did not say Texas Instruments yeah. on the show? Well, for, for those of those of us of a certain age, uh, back in the day, Radio Shack was actually a real thing where people oh, actually yeah. wanted to go and and yeah. uh, and do and hang out at and buy things and do things. There was even a Radio Shack Moog uh, synthesizer. Did you know that? Um, I didn't know that, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah, so yeah. They're pretty rare on on. Um, they were it was sort of an entry level Moog, if you want to call it that, right? But yeah, it was mm-hmm. made by Moog, but it had it was branded for uh, Radio Shack. Cool, eh? All right, so congratulations, Adam. And I think he met. He said Greg said he met him last year at WWDC, right? So. Yes, I, I believe that was the case. All right. Um, all right. So, sorry, I, I was going to say, have you talk about Microsoft, the Microsoft store there, Jaime? Yeah, I guess I guess this technically counts as follow-up as well, because I'm, I'm fairly certain we talked about the fact that at uh, Microsoft's Build Conference in 2017, it was announced that iTunes was going to be available in the Microsoft store. And, and it is, like, a week before the next 2018 edition of Microsoft Build. So, technically still true that they, they delivered uh, when they talk about it on the stage, I'm sure. Sure. Uh, apparently, it is a hefty install at 477 megabytes, but it's it's basically the iTunes you you know and love. But hasn't iTunes always been available on Windows? What am I so missing? that's that's different. So. Um, you're right that it has been available on Windows for a very long time, and Steve it's Jobs got very grumpy yeah. about it back in the day. Um, this is in the Microsoft Store. Think of it like the App Store equivalent or or the Mac App Store. Um, so, as they note here in this article from Ars Technica, uh, because it is a store app, it's installed and updated via the Windows Store updater, not Apple's installer and updater. Oh, I see. Right. Hmm. So apparently, it doesn't you know try to do iCloud stuff or any sorts of things. Uh, I'm, I'm vaguely aware of something called Centennial. 
uh, a technology on Microsoft side that makes it, I think, simple enough to have like your like let's say your normal Windows app that would normally be installed uh, wrapped up in some sort of abstraction that allows it to be usable from the Microsoft Store. Again, thinking of it as the the rough equivalent of a Mac App Store. And I think Centennial apps and and, and store apps sort of fall under that same sort of thing. Like you know how you know if I were to go download a Mac app like right off of you know some company's website, there's Gatekeeper and other things, but it's not the same as the sandboxing restrictions that you would get for apps that are downloaded from the store. I believe right. it's the same sort of relationship here with the Microsoft Store. So it's not like downloading an EXE from the store where you have to choose the place on your drive where it's going to install and all kind of stuff. Is it sort of like a like a installer packaged, if you will? And does it does it fall under app review as well with Microsoft? Presumably, I believe there is some sort of review, but I don't recall where on the spectrum it falls between sort of Google's Android store that's predominantly automated. And then if there's something weird, they have a, an actual human being look at it or Apple's sort of implementation where it's largely human beings and a little bit of automation. I would guess that Microsoft probably falls somewhere in the middle. Right. Right. Huh. Well, that's good. Um, just a quick one here. Um, I didn't even know this was happening. I kind of wonder what was happening with the MacBook Air, but apparently there's a 13 inch MacBook Air that's, or sorry, a MacBook Air model. I guess the 13 inches, the 11 is probably gone, but apparently the 13 inches do for a refresh. Um, I mean, I'm running a 2013 MacBook Pro, MacBook Air, so I mean, it's been a long time. We're waiting for this device. If it was if it was going to come, I didn't even like I said, I didn't even know it was coming, but apparently it is coming. And uh, it's the, the announcement here is that it's delayed till the second half of 2018. But hey, better late than never is all I gotta say. So I was kind of wondering about that because you know I'm really sold on Touch ID now. I don't know if I would even go to a MacBook Air at this point. I might go to like a MacBook Pro 13, right? Well, what if it included Touch ID? Yeah, well, that would be great, right? Because because then, then I get the uh, the advantage of having a, a um, light to carry computer, which I don't really carry around much anymore. But uh, you know, I do I do carry it back and forth from my desk to my couch. You know, so it's a long way to go to carry a heavy Mac, right? Touch ID is so uh, two years ago though. I want I want a Mac that has Face ID now. That's oh mm, right there there you go right good point. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. You just sit down at your desk, pop open the cover, and boom, you're in. Yeah, you know, I kind of wonder about that too because what was I thinking about? This? I was thinking about the iPad when we were talking about Dan Beauregard um, a couple of days ago. You know, do you really want? Well, I don't know. I guess you just look at your iPad and it opens, or you look at your Mac and it opens. I get, I get that, but I'm not so sure about like purchasing things on the App Store, like that kind of thing. Like, I guess that's why we have to double click the the, the home the button on the, the phone to validate purchases, right? Right. So you, you, you double tap the space bar or something. Yeah, or something. Yeah. 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 So let's let's take uh, a little bit of time to pre-snark uh, a device that does not even Snark. exist yet. So the the mythical laptop that has Face ID on it. So what are the immediate problems that come to my mind? Problems here in, in air quotes. These are first world, extreme first world problems. What will people be complaining about on podcasts? Uh, not available in the future? Space Gray. That could be one. I was thinking more <laughs> two scenarios. One is the people who always have their laptop closed when connected to a monitor. So, right. you know, for yep. space reasons, yep. or they put it in one of those like vertical silo sort of uh, case holders, right? Does it, does it work for them? The next one is for people like me. I'm not going to complain about it because it doesn't really impact my life, but I have my primary monitor directly in front of me. And then the secondary screen a little bit off to my right at about, you know, three o'clock uh, on a clock coordinate system. Uh, that's where my laptop is. And right. boy, oh boy, you're going to hear people complain. Oh, every time I want to log in, I have to turn about three inches to my right or left, look at it, and then I can look at the screen in the center. So there you go. There's your, here's your pre-snark for the 
2018 rumored face ID on the you know people who keep it closed one, but not that last one because you only have to look at it once, and then you can set it to not go to sleep for as long as you want. So I don't I don't see that one as an issue. Well, there's also the other side of the coin is that this is not going to have a Retina display because the current MacBook uh, doesn't have a Retina display, right? And then if that's the case, where's Mark's 4K 5K monitor, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, in mind, I guess you can go third party and get a 5K monitor, right, Mark? Remember yeah. you were talking about having an Apple branded one? Was I talking about that? I mean, I, I, at my office, I have the LG one, which is the official, sure. uh, officially uh, supported one. I think before the LG came out, you were you were wondering where the the 4K or 5K monitor was from Apple. But well, I was, yeah, I was wondering when the for a long time I was wondering when the successor to the Thunderbolt display was going to come out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it never did, of course. Hmm. At the end of this article, it says the key feature for the model is a speculated resolution jump, moving to a uh, moving from 14. 40 by 900 in the current gen to a retina level 2560 by 1600 lg produced screen possibly produced by lg like that does not make sense this is what in the, on the back do you think it's made by lg <laughs> this lg produced screen the lg produced screen possibly produced by <laughs> yeah i got distracted by this article i'm reading about how since apple released 11.3.1 um they're now no longer signing older uh, versions of the os but i'm trying to wonder how far back they're not signing usually it's one or two versions back right um, yeah, I thought it was pretty, like, I think there was a grace period, but I, I don't remember them having a version, even a minor version, back signed. Am I, am I mistaken on that? Yeah, I thought it was like, you know, two, maybe like, like a maybe. month or two that they'll still have the old one signed, but then it's like, all right, everything was good, cut it off. Yeah, like 11.2, I would think, would be something like that would be signed back, right? Interesting. Yeah, I'm looking at that same article, and it does specifically say that they're not code signing 11.3 because right. they're trying to get people to update to, to 3.1. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, although this would be a little odd, but it doesn't necessarily mean that 11.2 has been turned off. Uh, okay. and it's, it's possible that there was something specifically about 11.3 that they're trying to get people off of. Oh, maybe there's a, there's mm. a bug in it or something. Maybe, yeah. Right. Or a security mm. issue or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do recall something about I think I think there was a it was a fast fix, right? Like a like a hot fix getting this uh dot there was some there was some, well, I was vaguely remember the, something the, the displays, right? The third party displays. Right, right. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah. Yes, they, if you replaced your display it was something about it wasn't working properly and it had something to do with the the OS so they did a real quick turnaround, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I guess uh, the, the follow-up section of the show is now over. We can move right on to our picks, right? It was the all follow-up Show. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. I'll follow up. In fact, this stuff is almost follow up too. So, what do you got for this, Jaime? Yeah, this is a relatively new site by uh, Paul Hudson. You may know him from uh, Hacking with Swift. Also has uh, what's new in Swift.com. And it's pretty neat because hmm. uh, let's say you haven't been keeping up date with the latest, you know, things between, you know, let's say version four and version 4.1 of Swift. Or let's say uh, maybe a pretty realistic example for our audience is you take on a, a new project and you say, oh my gosh, uh, this is in Swift 2.2. What is different between Swift 2.2 and Swift 4.1? And you can choose those little drop downs. Let's say it goes from Swift 1, 1, 1.1, 1. 1.2, 2, 2.1, 2.2, 3, 3.1, 4, 4.1, and includes actually 4.2. That's pretty good. You can do that too. And you can see the difference like, oh, okay, well, uh, new in Swift 3, all function parameters have labels unless you request otherwise. And uh, you can omit needless words. Yeah, so it gives you some blast from the past or perhaps some practicality 
quickly of, uh, you know, what the heck is going on here. Cause sometimes the, uh, I've noticed the migrator doesn't always work so well when you have it migrated along with every step. It's sort of it's incremental. It's not like, oh, take the Swift 1.0 and, and convert it into 4.2. So you need to do some uh, manual surgery there to get your, your projects up and running. I, I think this might be a good resource for that. Didn't we talk about this? This was not this site. We talked about what's new in Swift 4.1 recently. It might have very well been something very similar because I was thinking this had already existed. Did um, this? Maybe it was, um, wow, did he really? Did I repick a pick like a week oh, later? Can you believe Can you believe that you might have done that? Dude, dude uh, when was the last time Greg was scrolling on? back here. It'd be funny if it was you that did it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it was Greg, there'll be a tweet about it very soon. Maybe. Maybe there will there be. There you go, Greg. <laughs> You're looking for something to correct us on. <laughs> There's a softball waiting right there, <laughs> waiting to be crushed out of the park. Yeah. And going back to 186, I don't see it here, but I, I vaguely remember we talked about Paul Hudson before. What's new in Swift 3.0? So we have Great. talked about various individual articles, and for all I know, maybe this takes from that same database and presents it in a, a nicer fashion. Yeah, maybe that's the thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, or maybe it was in his tweet, because I'm looking here. There's, yeah, it's mentioned in a tweet of his that I brought up. Wait for it's it. It's so difficult. You know, in this multimedia world, it's like, mm, was that in the show? Was that in our Slack? Was it on Twitter? Was yeah, it an email? Back always. This is going back to March, so no, no, can't be it. No, maybe you're right. Maybe. Okay, we'll, we'll give it to you until, until we hear from greg cool cool it's cool. all yours oh you oh i see so the changes in the different versions didn't apple have a site like this we have talked about what is different between um different versions of xcode or different versions iOS, of ios maybe. yeah you can do the load drop down and see like oh looks like they added something to core animation you know that sort of thing yeah no this does look uh we've also familiar. talked about um other sites that did uh like textual diffs of the app store review guidelines so you could see precisely what changed instead of right. vaguely remembering yeah so going from four to four point one. Oh yeah this is cool no we there was something similar like this but i thought it was from apple or something yeah or apple Iowa. documentation does have something kind of similar and that's what i mean you were just talking about where it's color-coded yeah. what's new in a yes region. right yeah. right mm-hmm. yep. this could be handy because actually we were just talking we were just talking uh today or yesterday about what's the difference between swift 4 and 4.1 as we're moving uh soon ourselves right this will come in handy cool all right pretty tabs open on my computer um, so this one definitely is follow up, but, uh, and, and so it's interesting. We, the question came up about giving attribution in, in your code, like who, who you're supposed to, uh, know, how, how do you give attribution in your app and that kind of stuff, right? So one of the uh, team members, uh, at the Raver Nordic Slack there, Ron, Jano Middelfeld, who's uh, currently in, in Germany, I believe, uh, sent over tldrlegal.com and it lists off some of the most popular, um, open source licenses that are out there. So such as our favorites like the MIT license or the Apache license or the GNU license or the BSD license. And so, for instance, if you click on the in the uh, MIT license, it tells you um, in a sort of quick uh, what you can do with it, what you cannot do with it, and what you must do. Like, for instance, in that case, you can use it for commercial use, you can modify, you can distribute, you can sub-license, and you can use it for private use. Uh, you cannot hold them liable for anything that you do in your code or they've done in their code, but you must include a copyright and you must include include a license with the code. So I'm not sure. So it's sort of a handy tool um, to basically use TLDR legal to find out um, what's going on. Of course, we have to uh, throw in the disclaimer, Jaime. 
we are not lawyers. Um, presumably, neither are the people who are doing this, or at least you should right. find out. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's for uh, entertainment how, purposes only. Yeah, exactly, because I don't know how, how accurate these are, again, because I'm not a lawyer, but um, off the cuff looking at, like, you know, what does yeah. the MIT license require, and what does the GPL version 3 require? The can, cannot, and must yeah. columns look reasonably reflective of that, but, of course, the devil is always in the details, and that's why we have lawyers. Right. Well, this one is maintained by Kevin Wang, this particular uh, um, one here, and it doesn't say that he, he's the one who made TLDR legal. It doesn't say whether he's a lawyer or not either, so uh, you can either you can either say, well, Kevin said it was okay, or whatever. Um, and it's been looked, this particular license has been looked at 45, so hurry, 458,000 times, and it's got 81 hearts on it. But interesting thing, if you're looking for this, by the way, in my case, if you're since you asked, I'm sure you're asking Mr. Listener, um, I actually have a lawyer that I would contact and, and ask this kind of stuff and pay him, you know, 300 bucks or whatever to, to get an opinion. Um, or I would just ask Mark and Jaime what they do. And uh, so what do you, because we've talked about the MIT licensing and, and I think the BSD licensing before, right? So how do you guys go about, how would you go about, um, like, does that just mean you put the license in the code base with it? Like, like you pack it in with the bundle or, or do you expose it somewhere in, say, a settings panel or an about page if you're using third-party libraries in your app, that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, mm-hmm. I, I try not to use third-party libraries as yeah, much I knew as possible. That was coming, but, yeah. uh, <laughs> but, of course, you know, general rule of thumb is, you, you know, for something like an iOS app, you, you probably want to look for something that has an MIT license or an Apache license versus, a, say, a GNU license because the problem with the GNU license is you have to disclose the source code. Uh, and uh, with the MIT license, you don't have to. So, so uh, that, yeah, that's kind of the general rule of thumb. And, and yes, you do have to include uh, well one advantage of, of doing something where you do disclose the source code is that you can just include the license file in the source code you don't necessarily well again I'm not a lawyer but I think you, if you if you do that you don't necessarily have to disclose it in your app whereas if you aren't disclosing the source code you, you do have to show the uh, the license in the app or at least make it available you don't necessarily have to give the full license file but maybe you have a link to it or something like that you, you you for sure have to acknowledge it somewhere. Sure. Uh, I, and I mean, if you do put it in the bundle, I guess, you know, technically someone could uh, unzip the IPA and, and see the file is there, right? And, that kind of, and maybe if it's a plain text, they can, they can read it or strings it or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah they, I, I'm not sure that that's enough to, to satisfy. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't I don't know if, if just putting it in the bundle, which is not readily accessible to anyone, I'm not sure that that's, that's enough to comply. Yeah. You would, I, you would put it in, a, in a, like a, an about screen or something like that or yeah either yeah i mean put it put it on like an about or a settings or something screen and and maybe have either either have uh you know a, a link or, or a button where you can actually bring up the license file in the app or just have it be a a link to some website where the license is posted something like right. that right how many, what you're gonna say I, I i think margaret's right right I, again I'm, I'm not a lawyer but even if it technically met the letter of uh of the license and therefore the law here uh, uh, generally untested law mind you like a lot there's still a lot of uh, wild west stuff going on and, and precedents to be set in the world of open source licensing but i would guess that the weakest sort of thing you could do is include it as part of the bundle that somebody could if they have knowledge pull stuff out because uh, you right. have technically distributed it to them but i could see a reasonable judge saying mm, that's not cool because the average person isn't going to know how to do that and you might be meeting the letter but not really the spirit and intent of the license Right, um, right. So yeah, I think Mark's right. Doing the I don't know, I've seen a couple different ways, and I, I'm I'm not a 
lawyers. So I don't know if one is legally more sound than the other. For folks who have like an about screen within the like, within the app itself, so you I don't know you go to like the, the settings, you know, junk drawer of Doom, and you find your way into legal licenses and stuff. But it says, okay, tap here, and you've got this enormous scrolling list of every license for every you know thing that they've included in their third party stuff. Um, and then I've also seen that sort of same sort of mechanism, but not within the app itself, but over sort of banished over to the settings app land. So it's it's included as part of the app itself, right? Like the stuff that goes into the settings app is pulled out from your, um, yeah, from your bundle, bundle yeah. to display stuff. So again, I don't know what the legal precedence is for this. Um, I would guess in my uneducated non-lawyer sense that the put banishing it to the settings app is probably a little bit weaker legally, but still feels better than merely just dumping it into the bundle. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And I know I've seen the license sometimes appears in a CocoaPod if you're if you're downloading CocoaPods. I've seen them in there as well. But And there is yeah. a CocoaPod that will generate uh, license type stuff for you for all the CocoaPods you've included. I have really? No clue. Where does that go? Where does that, yeah, that, that was actually the answer the guy was looking for. Do you know what the name of that one is by any chance? No, I, I honestly don't. Um, oh, cool. And I don't know what, what happens for like Carthage stuff. I don't know if there's a Carthage oriented solution for this. Yeah, but presumably that's, so what do you think that CocoaPod would do? It just kind of gathers them all together in one place kind of thing? or Yeah, I think you know, if and this is another thing where it gets sort of tricky and dangerous with CocoaPods in that mm-hmm. uh, I'd say nine out of ten pods out there include like an actual legitimate license file. I don't remember if it's required as part of the, the CocoaPod spec, and, and maybe this has changed over time. Right. But I'm reasonably certain I've seen CocoaPods uh, projects out there that don't have a license file, or they have a license file and then it's zero bytes because it's empty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so therefore you wouldn't really know or have anything to display. But if you do, it does. The, the CocoaPod thing I'm thinking of was something that would run at uh, build time and go grab, you know, because you can read your, your pod file just as, as well as CocoaPods itself can and go grab all the license files for, you know, the, the 10 CocoaPods you're using in your project. You don't have mm-hmm. to go manually add these things uh, to your files somewhere. Making a note of that here. Yeah. Alrighty, cool. Um, do you have a pick, Mark? I do have a pick. Uh, my pick is a book that is actually just came out. It's pretty, pretty new uh, that I picked up on a whim and I'm actually really, really happy about it. It's it's called Classic Computer Science Problems in Swift and it's written by a guy named uh, David Kopeck who apparently is a professor in uh, Vermont and uh, it, it's actually a real nice book. So what I was expecting was kind of a cookbook of you know Swift implementations of, of just some well, classic computer science problems and it is that but it's even more than that because it's also kind of a tutorial on, on algorithms at the same time. So nice. it, it does, it basically it has just a, a whole huge set of of, uh, of, of problems of all, all different types uh, and full disclosure I've, I'm only you know about 20% through so I haven't read the whole thing but but so far I'm pretty happy with what I've seen uh, and it starts off with kind of simple stuff and, and gets even more complicated uh, and it does give Swift implementations for for all sorts of all sorts of problems but it also gives kind of the idea behind the problem and 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 what algorithm is used to solve it and and uh, you know it goes into some tricks to speed it up. It, it, in some cases, it'll give sort of a, it starts off with the classic, yeah, the very first one is the classic calculating a Fibonacci sequence, uh, which is, you know, just 0, 1, 1, 3, uh, is that 1, 1, 2, 3, where you just, you take the last two numbers.
numbers and you add them together and that's the next one. So, so it, it kind of explains how you can do that very naturally, uh, using a recursive type of algorithm. Uh, but you quickly get into problems where, uh, the depths get so large that you're, you're limited relatively quickly in how high of a, a, a of a, a, a sequence you can calculate. So then it talks about why well, you can use memoization to get around that, uh, or do an iterative approach. So, so it's nice, you know, so it's not only did it give you an implementation, but it actually gives you a couple of different implementations and explains the trade-offs and the advantages of, of both. And that's just the first problem. So there, there's a, a, a large, I don't know exactly how many, but there's a, there's a whole lot of them and they're really bite-sized, you know, so you can read, they're, they're usually like one or two pages each, maybe the more complicated ones get longer, but I haven't gotten that far in the book yet. Uh, so you can just read them and, you know, depending on how fast you read and how experienced you are, you know, maybe 10 minutes or maybe an hour and digest it and type in the code if you want or download the code and play with it. Uh, so yeah, real nice book. Pretty happy with it. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the table of contents on Amazon's look inside. Mm-hmm. Um, some real classics in there. Fibonacci, as you mentioned, Towers of Hanoi, yep. the eight Queens problem. There's an Australian map coloring one that I'm kind of curious what that is because I, I recall a map coloring problem. I don't remember it having the Australian prefix to mm-hmm. it. Um, I have the book open in front of me. I can find that one. Let's see. That's chapter three. I've also heard that problem, I think, referred to as like a, like a Dutch bridge problem. Mm-hmm. So the, the Dutch yeah. have okay. a lot of bridges. So, so uh, I don't think it's anything specific about Australia here. Uh, it's ju- the, the problem, as he poses it, is imagine you have a map of Australia that you want to color by state slash territory. Uh, no two adjacent regions should share a color. Can you color the regions with just three different colors? So I, I think the Australia part is just a convenient example because that's a case that uh, is very easily done using these three colors. Oh, okay. Okay, because I, I might re- be reaching way too far back, and if uh, you're studying for an exam in computer science, uh, I apologize, because I'm failing you at the moment, so don't use my answer on the test. Um, I could have sworn there was like some sort of mathematical proof around you know what's the minimum number of colors you would need for uh, coloring some arbitrary map so they would never yeah. touch, and it was like four, four or, five. or five. Right, yeah. right. So uh, the Australia case is a slightly similar, simpler one that you can get away with using three, so uh, I think that's what he's referring to there. It's not the general case of any any possible map. Right. It's a won't hurt your brain and, and get the concept yeah. across at the same time. Really. So this exactly. sounds cool because it not only will you learn there, but they certainly seem to have real applicability to the kinds of problems you're generally going to get for uh, interview whiteboarding coding mm-hmm. type things. Yep. And the nice cool. thing is it's uh, it's a brand new book, so it's all on Swift 4.1. I was going to say, yeah, because I've been, I've been looking for books like this uh, for a little while. I picked up, I even picked up a couple of books on algorithms recently. So this, but this is uh, right up my alley. Yeah. Another cool. nice thing that I've noticed already even though I'm not too far into it, is that he definitely uses idiomatic Swift. It's it's clearly not, this is clearly not a case where the author originally wrote the book in some other language and then just, mm, you know, just changed the code to Swift to, to sell it to more people. Uh, because his, his Swift code is is pretty nice and uses a lot of the, the Swift tricks that uh, that we all know and love. Cool. Yep. I'm kind of curious on, uh, this is David Kopeck as the author. I, I clicked on his name on Amazon and wanted to see what, to, what other books he has. I'm very curious curious on this person's background because besides this classic computer science problems in Swift, he's also got uh, Dart for absolute beginners, Dart being the JavaScript-ish replacement uh, from Google, mm-hmm. and uh, co-author with uh, Christopher Pileggi. Artificial intelligence and problem solving. That's uh, it's quite a variety of books there. Yeah. 
Well, he's a professor. Looks like uh, in Burlington, Vermont. So pretty close to you, Tim. Mm-hmm. You should I've go been down Burlington, there. Vermont. Give him a visit yep. sometime. Yep. Actually, a small, funny story about Burlington, Vermont. You won't believe this, but I bought my first PHP book in Burlington, Vermont. Hmm. Yeah, I saw this book on online, and I was thinking about buying it, and saw it in a. I think it was like a Barnes and Noble or something like that. We were we stayed over in Burlington one night on the way back from down east from Boston or whatever. Yep, small world. Mm-hmm. They have a ferry there across the. I think there's like a lake. Champlain or something like that down there. Lake Champlain, yeah. Yeah, and the fastest way across it is to take the ferry. So Yeah, I've been there did. once too. Was there on a business trip there? IBM has a has a big or used to at least used to have a big facility there. Yeah. Not a small place. It's pretty big. Yeah. I mean city wise goes a cities go right in the middle of ski country, right? Yeah, I did go skiing for a day while I was there. <laughs> I wasn't there quite then, but yeah. Cool. All right. Well I guess that's it for the week. And uh hey how, may, how do people find you if they want to find you on the interwebs? I'm on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair. All right, and Mark, if people want to get in touch with you. Mark R. It's not soft talk. Oh, Mark R. Clever. It's always All fun. right. And as usual, I am Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitcher machine is the easiest way to get a hold of me. And uh, like that, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. 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 This concludes another intriguing, insightful, and inquisitive episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm friend of the show and sometimes host, Greg Heo. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find all the details on how to help us out on our website. That's mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time, eh? By the way, honey, what was that, that trick you were telling us about how to get rid of all the tabs on your on your phone? You force touch on the, uh, I mean, in Safari, I mean, on the phone. Do you remember the trick? Oh, that's a good question. Let me pull up my phone. I thought you force touch on the X or something like that. Wait, to force close them all? Yeah. Let me see. Whoops. Oh, I you know, you accidentally for, closed yeah, one I didn't want to close. You force touch, you long press on the done, I think. Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, in my case, I have, you know, like a blank mobile Safari page and, you know, it has the, I don't know what this button is called. It's in the lower right hand corner. It looks like two sheets of paper, one stacked behind yes. the other. Yep. You can long press on that, and I have an option to close all 11 tabs, close this tab, make a new private tab, or make a new tab. Oh, really cool. Yeah, but if you're also in, if you're also going into that mode and you long press on the done, you can close all the tabs as opposed to just because you, know, you only go into those ones and you hit the X to close each one at a time, right? Yeah. And pro tip for those of you who didn't listen to that episode, if you did like I just did and accidentally closed the tab, <laughs> you can long press on the plus and get the recently closed tabs look. So I'll bring that back up. Oh, so you can, oh, does that work on the all or just on the one, if you do the one? I don't even want to pretend that I'm going to take the chance of closing all 11 tabs. So we'll follow up. So once I get through all this reading material. (laughs) Well, to give give an example here, I have 229 tabs open, so. In mobile Safari? Yeah. Oh, man, that's making me twitchy. I can't deal with that. (laughs) I'll send you a screenshot even better. All right, so another follow-up piece we have here. So 
Here's an interesting fact that I kind of, I, I don't know if you, I think we talked about this before, that Apple now has podcast statistics for podcasters, right? We talked about that before. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I've taken a look at some of the numbers and they don't jive with anything like what we what we see in our in our regular feeds. And I think that's because of um, Apple's only capturing information from people who actually opt in to be, um, to have their information shared with Apple. And also I think they're only capturing uh, listeners who are using the podcast app, right? Um, either, mm-hmm. or I guess, or I iTunes on um, on your Mac, right? But uh, or maybe a Safari browser as well. You know, basically official Apple products. And so it seems to me that when I look at the the amount of time that people spend listening to the podcast, they probably listen to most of it up until we do the sign off, and then and they might bail. So a lot of them may not may not get the quality material that we put into the after show. That said, on last week's after show, we talked about the Simpsons specifically the the problem with Apu and and uh, the uh, the fur that's that a raising. And so it was an interview uh, that was published in the Star uh, with Matt Groening, um, the creator of The Simpsons, about the, you know, the th- I think it's the 30th anniversary that's coming up. Um, they're, uh, you know, they've done 636 episodes, and I believe that in the next couple of weeks we'll have the 30th, anim- uh, 30th. So then that puts them in the same range with Gunsmoke, which was another uh, show that was on forever, it seemed. But they asked him specifically about uh, a number of things about, like, how he feels about, you know, the, the longevity of The Simpsons and, and that kind of stuff, but they asked us pointedly about uh, the question is, do you have any thoughts on the criticism of Apu as a stereotype? And his answer was not really, I'm proud of what we do on the show, and I, th- I think it's a time in our culture where people love to pretend they're offended, which is a bi- viable answer in my opinion. Um, you know, and, and I, as I said last week, I think it's kind of part of what The Whole Simpsons is all about. I don't think anybody is is a safe subject on that show, um, and you know, they don't skirt around issues with other with other parts of the show, so why would they, why would they do that? So, um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, it's so tough because I want to be, you know, mindful of folks who are, um, you know, legitimately offended. I don't want to belittle that uh, by any means, but I do think he's right in that we, in like a 24 seven, well, I guess it used to be 24 seven, you know, media coverage, like press coverage. I think it's now 24 seven, uh, people on the street sort of coverage, you know, with something like Twitter, Facebook, what have you, where I, I, I do see a trend where it's sort of like, oh, you should be offended by this thing. I'm totally offended. And it's like, mm, are you really? I'm looking at your post history and i could guess you probably wouldn't be offended by this i think sure, you're just sure. you know looking for click i'm offended by potty humor but i've laughed at potty jokes before so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mia culpa right right and watched uh, south park and not run away screaming right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep, right yeah. i mean i do i do i mean i know people who who are offended by this stuff and they make the conscious choice not to participate in it or support it and whatever and more power to them and you know i happen to live with one of them right but um you know it's humor it's meant to be funny um you know if it if it offends people in today's day and age, perhaps it should be dealt with. And but you know, it, it, it hasn't bothered people for well, maybe it bothered some people for you know the last little while. But I think I sort of relate a story that you know when I first came along, the, I mean, I think I was the only Indian kid in an entire school, and you know, so that was kind of a tough place to be. So or not even Indian, half Indian at that, right? So not even not even fully a card carrying member, right? So I love the the part at the end of this article where he talks about is there anything left on your Simpsons accomplishment list? And he says. He says, we need our own full theme park. We've got some rides. We need some rides with the Krusty Burger at Universal Parks. But we need a 600-foot-tall statue of Homer at the center of a theme park. And you can eat dinner in his in his head. So. I would go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not taking himself too seriously is my point. Um, okay.
I'll have to put a disclaimer. Damn, on looks like you lost a little weight in this picture. Sorry, what? <laughs> oh yeah, like yeah, you lost a little weight. No, the one below there. <laughs> I got all my tattoos done too. Yeah, and my my, my nose piercings and stuff. Does he even cut this? Yeah, he has to zoom in on it. Yeah, yeah, he's you got can't that, see this picture. Uh, I was working. This is a hybrid. This is a low res version of that picture. So that thin ripped sort of look. Actually, that's interesting. You can tell it's a uh, it's a mocked up photo because yeah, it's a V neck. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I thought about yeah. that, and like I, yeah. I probably should fix it in Photoshop, but you know, I figured. <laughs> oh, well, you know, who cares? The shirt beside it shows shows what it what it's like, right? That's the that's the color of the one on on Teespring actually. But if you look at the photograph below, you can sort of see the the shade of gray. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like how the logo deforms on the uh, on the model there. Yeah, well, that like it's not totally look. flat, right? It actually tries to semi look like it's going over the folds. Well, so that's my Photoshop trick because uh, is that an optical illusion or is that real? That's an optical illusion. It's yeah, actually okay. square. Yeah. Oh, is so, it? Okay, wow. It, it, yeah, it looked like the coloration was doing that. I was like, oh, that's pretty neat. I didn't know that they did that. Well, no. So, so that's my skill in Photoshop. So, so what I did was, what I do is, I take the, I do a mask around the T-shirt and I make it neutral. And I throw the saturation out to make the T-shirt gray, right? And then I, pay, I place the artwork over top, and it's square, but it looks odd. It looks like it's fake, right? So then I take the the shirt again with all the t- with all the folds and textures in it, and I put it, I make a layer on top of in Photoshop, and then I I use like a filter to just affect the the like to apply some shadow to the to the white. You know, and then then it looks like it's on actually on the t-shirt, but it's not. If you look, if you took out a measurement, or if you like, if you, if you could zoom in on this, which you can't because it's too small, but you'd see that that it's actually square. Mm. It wouldn't be square on a body; it would be actually distorted, right? It's so on the back where it gives a link. Does it also say more than just code podcast or just the link? No, it just says www. It just says mtjc at .fm, just like yeah. it did two years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think for next time maybe it would make sense to write out what it is so people know? No. <laughs> what do you think, Jaime? Yeah, it's it's tricky because the the fact that it's not written out causes yeah. a lot of folks to ask me what is that. Well, exactly. Right. So <laughs> there is some mystery there. Um, with that said, we should consider mm-hmm. next year's model and see okay is there like a style where we, where we actually do spell it out yeah yeah right? well um, it's like yeah like it's kind of it's kind of like a bumper sticker like on the back of your car right that's how i look at it like it my intention is that and, I, and maybe it's maybe it is flawed in that that you put the website there and if people are interested they'll go hey i wonder what that website is and then punch it in and then they find out what it is and they go oh this is so disappointing sorry followed up, followed up on that <laughs> maybe you should put like a qr code on so, the back or something next year yeah yeah, yeah or, maybe or we have we do an a b test we have two different versions with a slightly different different link right one says what it is one doesn't and see which one gets hit more and we put a facebook pixel on and we see which one gets better a b testing right yeah yeah mm-hmm. print a mm-hmm. facebook pixel on the onto the thing yeah no well, the, the whole idea of qr code that, that will only tell us what uh how popular it is in russia if we put a facebook on it that's or china they use they like them over there well yeah anyway yeah because it was all, all those because remember last year they added um qr codes to facebook or uh, yeah no it's, i mean it's, uh, twitter twitter i'm thinking twitter sorry facebook before we get some uh, tweets correcting us, yeah. I earlier said that the Intel 8080 was the chip in the TRS-80. Yeah. Uh, it's not exactly true. It was actually the Zilog Z80, which was oh, a ripoff yeah. of the Intel 8080. Oh, okay. Set the record straight. Yeah, Tim, please, please put this as like the very last thing in the episode, like the after show, after show. Why? 
so we can troll. Oh, oh Greg. yeah, 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 yeah. He yeah. claims like I'm, I'm on to you. I'm going to wait till I finish the episode yeah, before yeah. I tweet. He's like, "Are you, Mister Hero? Are you going to wait till the very last final second? Let's find out." So please yeah. help us we'll with this experiment. Typed and be about ready to hit enter, and then we'll pull it back. Yeah, he probably <laughs> listens on on uh, Overcast at two times the speed, so he gets his full reading in there. So you know what? It's, I'm just looking at his at the header on his Twitter account. He's got the Oakland Bridge on uh, on there again. What what is it about? Isn't it like the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge is supposed to be the one that people are supposed to put in there as the ubiquitous picture of bridges? Yeah. So the Golden Gate Bridge is the famous one, although the yeah. the uh, Oakland Bridge is actually the more used one, interestingly enough, uh, right. because yes, it goes yes. to the East Bay, which is way more populated than uh, than the North Bay, which is where the Golden Gate goes. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. That that kind of fits with Greg's sense of humor, I think, to, to use the off-the-beaten-path one, the not-so-commonly used one. Oh, I guess, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. I've never, never actually been across it myself. But the bark goes across her now, doesn't it? Uh, it doesn't go across the bridge. It actually goes through a tube under the bay. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Through a tunnel. But uh, but this bridge is actually brand new. Uh, it was the old bridge was kind of a kind of a disaster. Uh, yeah. And in fact, pieces of it collapsed in the big 1989 earthquake, uh, okay. killing some people. So it, it was it was kind of a mess. Uh, and they just well, when I say new, it's been a few years now. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, they spent a good, you know, probably a decade rebuilding the whole eastern span of the bridge. And it just, they finished it two or three years ago. Right. So it's a whole brand new one. Cool. Earthquake safe. <laughs> is it? Is it earthquake safe? That, yeah, that's why they built it. Yeah. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, it depends on how big the earthquake is, of course, but uh, it's, you know, it's it's meant to be safe against any uh, foreseeable earthquake, knock on wood. You know, there's, it's always possible that we'll get the, the super big one mm-hmm. that'll destroy everything but hopefully not the super big one the big one when the when both the the hayward faults and the san andreas faults both slip at the same time and it takes up whole barrier bay area really that's that's Mm. the one when that's the one where where california will what's left of california will be an island and you'll have nevada uh beachfront property